0: Welcome to the next episode. No, it's not a cover of the early naughty single by Dr. Dre. It's the Keep It Renal podcast uh, talking to you about our latest episode, which deals with our interview with the Nobel Prize winning scientist, uh, Sir Peter Ratcliffe. So myself and Rosie Loft from Kidney Research UK uh, interviewed Sir Peter towards the end of um, December. uh, And you're about to hear our interview with him in full. Sir Peter Ratcliffe is a British clinician-scientist who initially trained as an nephrologist, um, and he currently holds academic positions at the University of Oxford uh, and also the Francis Crick Institute in London. And Without getting into too much detail, the work that Sir Peter Ratcliffe did um, was to basically find out the chain of events um, that lead from the cell sensing that the levels of oxygen are low to releasing EPO. Um, He worked on the molecular chain of events that that basically caused that. A little bit daunted, I have to say, before I went in to speak to him. Um, You know, winning the Nobel Prize is a really, really big deal. You know, this guy's basically a rock star. Um, But I've got to say, he was a really, really nice guy, really put us at ease. Um, And we had a great chat. Uh, You're about to hear it. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get a real sense of just how relaxed and just basically having a nice chat with a Nobel Prize-winning scientist, as you do. Enjoy!
1: Uh, one of the huge reasons that we've come to you today is um, because you've had um, uh, an important role at Kidney Research UK, although, it, albeit quite some time ago. We were hoping you might be able to tell us um, how you first became involved with the charity. Um, we think you were, you were working in nephrology at the time.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm an nephrologist. Um, I became uh, in- involved through um, you funding uh, an early component of my research. There were two. There was one on acute uh, kidney injury, uh, and a second one, which was the entree uh, to the work that's um, been the subject of my life for twenty odd years.
1: So the, the charity funded those, those the two The charity
2: features. funded, importantly, um, the first work that we did on uh, erythropoietin production by the isolated perfused kidney, uh, and that uh, gave me a little start-up fund. Um, I subsequently got uh, funding from the Wellcome Trust, but the kidney research was, was quite important in, in enabling uh, a sort of ramp-up phase of that work
1: sure and um the charity was quite a lot smaller at that time but what were your memories of the organization
2: <clears throat> well um you're regarding the application simply making it and getting the successful award so that was a good day um uh, but as you know i became involved in the uh, grants uh, review process as a member of the grants committee and uh, subsequently chair um That was, I guess, similar to other grants committees I've served on. Uh, We did our best to adjudicate the applications as fairly and efficiently as we could. And um, we gave money out to um, people doing kidney research, and uh, that was always a rather gratifying thing to be able to do
1: and sure. um, one of our um, directors is, is um, still with us today and I think you, you crossed paths at the time as well Michael Nation Indeed. and and he credits you with um, helping take the charity in quite a, a new direction in terms of um, opening up more opportunities for collaboration uh, do, do you recall that uh, that time particularly
2: well it was quite an exciting time um I guess the economy was quite buoyant in the 90s and we were all ambitious that more money uh, would uh, come to kidney research and uh, indeed it did and and that enabled us, I think, to set up the first fellowships, uh, personal fellowships, to to, usually to young people wanting to embark on a career in in kidney medicine and and kidney research. So that was very gratifying to be able to do that and, and, and make some slightly larger awards that provided more definitive uh, funding uh, and also to take on uh, broader initiatives. I I was involved with the uh, uh, UK glomerulonephritis DNA bank for instance so that was a new initiative that uh, ultimately provided some genetic insights into kidney disease.
1: Fantastic, thank you.
0: One of the main things I sort of want to get across is how the world of science research works perhaps to any patients or their families who might be listening and their only experience of it might be ticking the box to say they're going to donate their tissue or samples to medical research and never really hear much beyond that. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know how you felt the world of uh, science funding and getting grants has changed since your early days to now. Uh,
2: To be honest, I don't think it has changed. Um, It was good then and it's good now, actually, that there's... uh, The strong funding for research in the UK. Um, Obviously it could be stronger uh, but the UK has performed well in any science performance indicator including the Nobel and that's in part due to a fairly diverse um, science funding base. Uh, But um, I I guess it is important that, that science explains itself and there has been some difficulty in, in really uh, um, getting across the message that knowledge builds on knowledge in unexpected ways. To be honest, there should be no real doubt about that. If, if you take, for instance, the, the phenomenon of electricity from, from the first uh, theoretical uh, experiments uh, demonstrating the nature of electricity... To its current utility, uh, one can see many, many transitions that couldn't conceivably have been predicted yeah, by who knows where it ends and Voltaire and mm. others who made those original observations. Uh, this is an extraordinarily difficult concept to uh, sell to politicians, I guess, to sell to the public and sell to those who are not uh, directly involved with the process. They not unreasonably unre- believe that research should be strongly directed towards a specific goal. Um, uh, Of course, if one could see that goal as achievable, then that's where the research should go. But um, very commonly, one can't see the immediate connection. Uh, Yet, time and time again, uh, it's proven that uh, a small step, a small gain in secure knowledge, can be used by other people to build a network which ultimately helps patients, helps uh, transform medicine over the 20th and 21st century beyond all recognition. And and most of those advances were not in any way foreseen um, when the original work Yes, if you're trying to write the grant
0: application for some of these things, quite how you would predict um, what the benefits would be.
2: To to expand on this, probably the most important point I'll have to make... um, I think we lack uh, a descriptor for for what we're doing. People talk about basic research, I I don't think that will make much sense to the general public. Um, They talk about curiosity-driven research, that that implies a slightly casual element, which is certainly uh, not the case. Um, They talk about bottom-up research. I don't know whether that would mean uh, anything to anybody. Uh, What I would like to get across is that this is passion-led research, a passion for discovery. The people who do it are totally committed to that discovery process for whatever reason in in the way that that artists can be totally committed to ballet or um, music or performance arts in, in many, many ways. This is the nearest analogy I, I can give no, that good, good one. scientists are passionate about about discovery, and in their back of their mind, they may have the idea that the discovery will 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 have some effect on on society. But actually, the direct drive forward is, is simply um, the acquisition of, of knowledge. That's great, no, and it sort of speaks to a lot of
0: the things I hold in my mind. So. me speaking to you as a scientist is a bit like a Sunday league player interviewing Cristiano Ronaldo and pretending they do the same thing but um, (laughs) I don't know how you'd feel but I sort of like that um, on any particular day I could see that one thing that sparks into you know a a whole new branch of my research and that becomes the next grant which becomes a big project and you know Potentially that could be any single day, any single week that you really make that discovery. Is there anything that stands out in particular for you as a really like we're onto something sort of moment?
2: Oh yes, there are several in the current story, uh, four or five probably. Um, I I started simply to understand how erythropoietin was, was regulated by the kidneys so very precisely that if you donate a unit of blood you'll make a a little burst of EPO, uh, and that will result in the replenishment precisely of the blood that's donated. That's an extraordinary uh, process. It it is uh, operated, uh, at least we understood when we started the work, through a change in oxygen level within the kidney, and we wanted to understand how that worked, i.e. how EPO was connected to oxygen. some people supported that at the time, uh, other people felt that since recombinant erythropoietin was already being used to treat patients that there was no real there was no real point in understanding uh, how it was uh, regulated um, but we went ahead to do that and and one of the first big transitions we recognized. was that this was not a mechanism that was private to erythropoietin. Actually, the oxygen-sensing mechanism was in all human cells. Actually, it's in all animal cells, even though they don't have erythropoietin, still have this mechanism. And it's used to promote the growth of blood vessels, to change metabolism, to change cellular behavior in all sorts of ways that that compensate for lack of oxygen and uh, although we always had in our mind um, a vague connection with human disease, it's now become a, a lot clearer that, that many or most human diseases are complicated by lack of oxygen. So possibly um, this new information will enable a new approach to to several different types of disease. So which
0: which do you sort of feel more informs you? Do you find your clinical side informing your... Research curiosity or the research curiosity helping you more so in the clinic, or is it difficult to know where one ends and well, one begins? Well, but, but to,
2: to be honest, both, both are very important. In, in in truth, I said about this question simply for the reasons I've stated that I thought it was a fascinating process and one that potentially might be soluble. I something of that sensitivity must have a definable mechanism, and mm-hmm. that's what I intended uh, to solve. Uh, but as you'll be aware uh, many people believe that the scientific training of clinicians is important to clinical medicine per se or or, or indeed to hospital management should you go that way Uh, and i'm one of those that believes that uh, that the process of scientific discovery teaches a certain humility uh, a certain ability to 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 look at a, a clinical situation and consider a very wide range of possibilities to consider that, that what you see you know, might not be absolutely uh, what is apparent. So in the diagnostic process, of course, a doctor looks at the range of possibilities that might be consistent with, with what the patient tells them. Uh, the natural human tendency is to narrow that possibility down... Uh, that's that's how medicine works we we have a prejudice as to what different patients might have Um, and very occasionally we're caught out the patient doesn't have that and the scientific training uh, enables I think the type of thinking that is is more accepting of outside possibilities because that's what we've learned over over the years of doing it that what on, might evidence. seem an obvious solution, ob- sometimes isn't correct, so just be careful. So, that that care and reduced prejudice that goes with the scientific training I think is important for practically every type of decision making you have to do, in- including that involved in clinical medicine. So, when presumably along the way, I don't, I don't know if you ever really get this feeling that there's,
0: to my mind, there's always one more experiment. Even when you finish a big paper and get that published, you're in, in, instantly thinking about what the next paper is. I'd be really interested to know if a Nobel Prize helps you feel like a chapter's been finished at least and it's not just one continuous convey about. Um I don't know, what I'm basically saying is it's hard, I sometimes find it hard and I know colleagues in the lab find it hard to really look back and feel a sense of achievement because there's always the next three questions you've generated. Do you feel a sense of completion a little bit?
2: Well yes and no to, to be perfectly clear the work was done in 2001 and at that point yes we did feel when we'd identified what is I think now widely uh, agreed to be the oxygen sensing mechanism, the enzymes that are oxygen splitting enzymes um, we think knew we'd, we'd made an achievement then um, all of the accolades have, have come quite a Period of time later, yeah, which is yeah. a slightly surreal feeling. Is but, that but down uh, to
1: the significance becoming even more apparent as, as time has moved on?
2: I don't know. To be honest, it was apparent to me at the outset, <laughs> and possibly within minutes of reading the experimental result that underpinned uh, <laughs> what we subsequently re- re- published. The, the I remember to to the minute. Uh, someone bursting into the office and saying, well you know here's your gene and sure enough he was right it was yeah awesome All Right, it's
0: probably worth pointing out actually that I, I think the our, our audience might well know a Nobel Prize is a good thing but would you like to sort of talk a little bit about what they're generally awarded for and
2: um, well w- w- we have the honor of the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine and that's that's the point I made at the banquet speech Um, we would love it to be physiology and medicine but at the moment the the prize I think has been awarded for a substantial advance in the knowledge of how the body works um, which is important simply to how it works now it has opened uh, the possibility of therapeutic manipulation of the human oxygen sensing system to to treat diseases where where oxygen is abnormal in in the relevant tissues Uh, but to be perfectly clear that isn't our work and, and it isn't completely clear at the moment quite how effective and quite how much those medicines will will transform nephrology for instance they are being used uh, patients in, in in China and Japan uh, are receiving uh, the, the, these medicines uh, they 're licensed there and, and we're expecting uh, quite shortly the the u s authorities to adjudicate um, on, on that but but all new medicines carry a risk to our patients as, as well as benefits and it'll be a little time before the relevant risk benefit equation is is totally clear. So if we think that this
0: work was sort of done over a period of 20 years or so um, or certainly 20 years to now where would you like to see in 20 years time that we have a really good understanding of the side effects profiles of these treatments we can really well titrate and target that oxygen sensing axis and what sort of benefits do you think that would have in cancer or acute kidney
2: injury? Well, the, the, to be clear, the the current aim, the, the, the most likely to succeed in the short term, is the treatment of the anemia associated with renal disease, mm-hmm. that these drugs will uh, uh, induce the disease, kidney, and, and potentially the liver to produce sufficient EPO to correct the anemia that kidney patients suffer. Uh, without injectable erythropoietin, Uh, at erythropoietin levels that are much more smoothly controlled, uh, that is potentially supported by improved iron homeostasis and perhaps other mechanisms that support erythropoiesis. So there's no doubt that these drugs are highly effective in the correction of kidney anemia. The outstanding question is whether given the number of effects that this system has on, on uh, processes outside erythropoiesis, whether when the drugs are used at the correct dosage, those effects will provide additional benefits to patients, which is quite possible, or, or they'll provide some side effect which, which has to be balanced. So it's, that's the unknown question for instance would they would they retard that would would they slow the progression of kidney disease mm. that would be a very important one for for patients who are not yet on dialysis mm. yeah just protect that function mm. Mm. i wondered if along the way
0: in your long research career if they've had any sort of dark days of grants not being awarded and and you know because I, I feel like i get the impression from my uh supervisor and pi that it's a constant level of plate spinning, um, trying to keep your postdoc employed, trying to keep your lab manager employed, if that's the sort of structure you have, Um, you know, were there any days where work didn't get funded and you thought the show might come off the road a little bit?
2: I was reasonably fortunate with the funding, to be honest. We we usually got
0: it. um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily fortunate. It might be because they were well-written, good pieces of work, but... (laughs)
2: Well, uh, (laughs) perhaps there is that to it. Um, I I do believe that scientists have a problem in explaining their science. Um, A lot has been said about explaining the science to the public. Um, I would suggest that we start with explaining the science to each other.
0: Mm.
2: That that often I read these grants and um, to be perfectly honest, even for me, they're impenetrable there's so much assumed knowledge so much shorthand that I I really can't easily make an adjudication and uh, if I had a word of advice uh, for people writing these things think think really really carefully whether someone else could understand what what you're saying and um so nice simple concepts well explained sure yeah sure that's that's
1: something that the charity is thoroughly behind especially these days we're um, funding more allied health professionals than we ever did before so people are coming from all different kind of backgrounds to receive funding from the Mm. organization Um, yeah so we need to be able to
2: I should say the allied health professionals are not any better in (laughs) in explaining themselves and often use unnecessarily technical terminology there is a tendency to to you know to to be a little bit shy of um, explaining a very simple idea and and, and uh, resort to the Sort of fudge of complexity that you can hide a, behind it to a, a certain extent. H- hide on. behind you know an enormous wealth of data and complexity. People think, well, it's bound to be important. You know, let's be clear, that's not true. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good grants committee will see that and not fund your work. Uh, so it is important to be to be honest and clear when you come forward for these things. Yeah. But yes, the, the the word down moments the um famous rejection of that demonstration that the system worked widely across human cells that that was the first evidence that you subsequently um brought about the events that we've just had in in stockholm mm. and it was rejected i i, I not on well I, that's a that's a, that's, a, that's a story. It was a new field, and, and people I think didn't initially see. So, the did it get back by reviewer
0: when you submitted it for publication? Or
2: yeah, you know, it took a long time to review it, and, and said that they couldn't find reviewers for it. Actually, that's a good sign because it indicates that the field is is relatively new. The real problem with research um, is that people will copy. They, they will go into fields that other people are already in and that's a problem with the current focus on mentorship if you're not careful the so-called mentor will seduce you into a field which they believe to be important but which is already full of people trying to work it out and um a really important thing is uh, you should have your own question. Yeah. Um, uh, you don't actually, people go on about independence. I, I don't actually think I know the meaning of the word. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure that I was ever independent in the way other people would understand it. I always tried to, to get as many colleagues and, uh, to, to advise me as possible. But I did have a distinct question, which was new. So I, I I think that we're tending to to go on about the need for investigators to be independent, and that's that's not correct. They don't need to be independent. They do need to have a new question, hmm. or So sort of independent of thought in your own little a niche. A certain but level of independence. Rely technically. A certain level of independence. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's really interesting. And one of the one of the really great things that Kidney Research UK do is they we have an annual Fellows Day where hmm. Anyone who is or has been funded by the charity is invited to speak, Uh, and included in the audience are are a vast number of patients. One of the things I've noticed over the years is it's comparatively easier for those who have done studies on um, the mental health of patients or exercise after dialysis. It's quite easy or easier for them to convey the message to patients. Those of us that are doing more molecular-based projects, um, we find it tricky, there's only a cert, you know, we try and explain it simply, but there becomes a certain point where perhaps you lose the meaning or it's hard to keep the interest. How do you think we can sort of educate the public a little bit more about molecular biology and enthuse them? Because I feel like we have a responsibility, especially if you're funded by the Medical Research Council and you're taxpayer funded, to tell the public what you're doing. I appreciate we can communicate better, but what if the public just aren't interested? How do we get them interested?
2: Well, I, I, I'm a little bit surprised by the current concern and current pressure for a more rapid translational research. In one sense, I'm concerned by In another sense, I can readily understand it, that the concept that that knowledge builds on knowledge in unexpected ways, and we have to feed that sort of knowledge matrix at one end, and expect things to come out at the other end w- without exactly knowing how it is a difficult thing to, to explain to people or at least difficult to convince them that that's true even in, in spite of the massive advances in society uh, across all realms of how we live and what we do and how our healthcare is delivered astounding evidence if you go about 500 years almost nothing of what we enjoy would be available Uh, and all of that has been generated by scientific investigation all of it Um, so the empiric evidence that this transforms society is beyond any question but of course we're asking people to fund us to do what we're passionate about in other words I'm asking you to fund me to do what I would like to do and clearly you can understand why people might be a little cynical about that that, why don't you do what I want you to do and um, yes you you, you could say that but if you do that you're not harnessing human passion you you need a lot of money to persuade people and and then they're, they're never quite as good at doing it as if really their passion is is to do that I, I, I think that's really difficult to explain and I, I don't think we do ourselves a service by making exaggerated claims about the proximity of our research findings to a cure for this and that you, you, you see this most prevalent in in cancer research we, we've cured cancer so many times over the last mm-hmm. five years mm-hmm. and I, I, I think the public's not stupid that they, they um, you eventually uh, evolve a a level of Hmm. scepticism and and that's no good because I believe we have a strong case but if we overstate it uh, as in any other situation we'll, we'll lose the the Blue trust, trust of, the, yeah. of the of the public and um, well, we start that to will strange be, being politicians be
0: a... at that point don't we so we <laughs> want to stay well away from that Although the,
1: the public <laughs> or certain our, our patient supporters are always keen to know patient benefit whenever how will this how will this particular project help patients ultimately I guess that might be quite hard to uh, explain as researchers when you're talking about building knowledge um, step by step but how do you approach that kind of question when you're asked
2: well, I have I, to be bluntly honest because I don't think any other approach will ever wash with the patients or any other. So the frank answer is um, when I started this work, I did not know how it would benefit patients. And to be perfectly honest, at this moment in time, although we've got a lot closer in that, you know, this is an unusual piece of research in having several therapeutic interventions Made possible, uh, two in late phase clinical trials and one in the clinic. Now that, that's as good a CV uh, uh, as, as you can have, but it's still not clear whether the one that's in the clinic will be a blockbuster transforming the pre dialysis or dialysis uh, treatment of anemia or not. lot of money hanging on that the anemia market's 10 billion a year so um you have to be quite respectful of the people who've put up the several hundred million to make and test those drugs they may lose all or or, or they may gain that 10 billion a year that's that's all riding and um i think people just have to understand that that that's the way it is and um you have to accept that, it can't, can't go more quickly. It's
0: yeah.
1: Tough.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think the big thing is I,
0: I hope the patients know all the work that the charity does and all the work that you fund and it's all heading in the same direction even if different channels are going at different I think speeds. the point is
2: we're all trying. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, how do you relax, presuming you get a bit of time to relax?
2: Well, my secretary's laughing. (laughs) To me, a lot of people have asked that question, uh, but the truth is I don't. I'm very fortunate. As I say, there's a passion for what I do. Uh, Not only has there been the satisfaction of achieving certain discoveries, but also winning the Nobel Prize, which is uh, interesting in its, its own right. So I'm an extraordinarily fortunate position of... Being able to do what I want to do, so the lab is full of young people. They they come from all over the world. The Crick um, Francis Crick Institute house hosts seventy seven different nationalities. Wow. So extraordinary diversity of people uh, to meet, and uh, I, I I don't really need to do other things. We, we do have a house in the south of France. Um, that's an interesting one from which you can judge the. The salaries are, are not absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, the, the, the the point about that is, um, occasionally you do get um, fed up, p- p- particularly of academic or university management. Uh, so I can tell you that um, Joanne Le Pan is a very good place to go because everything that matters in Oxford University does not matter in Juan <laughs> Le Pan mm-hmm. and everything that matters in Juan Le Pan does not matter in Oxford University so we, we, we go there but but frankly um there's there's no this commitment that there's, there's no time no no need Do so you think sure. you'd
0: subscribe to the whole do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life mantra yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I certainly feel like that well when experiments work I feel like that when mm. they don't I get a little annoyed <laughs> um,
1: can you tell us about the moment when you found out that you had won the nobel prize and how you felt
2: <laughs> yes um uh, well of course one has an inkling that the work is under adjudication by the nobel committee and people know when the nobel committee makes its announcement in october but i shut that out uh catherine my my pa knew the day um but I had actually forgotten it was that morning um, when she came into the uh, laboratory meeting and said, oh, there's a man from Stockholm on the phone. Um, uh, So I came down. and Indeed, there was a a man with a Swedish accent on the telephone. And um, in a bit like a beauty competition, he takes his time getting to the point. (laughs) This is Thomas Perlman, and I'm calling from Stockholm. In Sweden um from the Nobel assembly w- which awards the Nobel prize in 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 physiology <laughs> or medicine and all the time one's wondering whether it, it, it could be a, a so-called friend uh, oh, pulling you your leg well, I say, you've given us uh, enough info there to certainly um, fake that call now so that's good. <laughs> but it wasn't he, he he eventually did come to the point and uh um rather shortly after that there's a, a deluge of very kind notes and uh wow and all sorts of things
1: was that gratifying
2: yeah very nice yeah how do your patients react do you still uh, no no I, I i'm not doing i've i did do um a lot more clinical medicine than than most people who do this sort of thing. A lot more. Um, but um, first of all, nephrology. Nephrology is a very, very demanding uh, specialty because the patient's not unreasonably... Get an attachment to a particular physician, and that's very difficult to deliver those expectations against the job that I had, which was running the department of medicine. So at that time, I changed to do acute medicine. Uh, That's the acute medical admissions to 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 people uh, in crisis kind of thing. uh, And that 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 was better because um, easier, although it's very demanding. it's a big diagnostic content, a big teaching content, um, and I'm I'm looking at those patients at the time of their emergency. I'm not looking at them over many, many years, and at a personal level, um, it, it's, it's less stringent. Mm. I did that for as long as I was head of medicine, and I stopped doing it in uh, 2016 at yeah. the Francis Crick Institute. I, I've now got two jobs, one here and one there. And right, uh, and that's enough for you. It <laughs> <enough. Well>, yeah, <laughs> keeps <that's> you <laughs> busy enough. <laughs> that's enough, yeah. Do you miss the clinical work? Um, yes, indeed. No, it's, uh, it, it was a, a sort of joy in a certain sense in that in clinical medicine, you might do some use, something useful every, every week Something like that, so something 's been missed, you pick something up that um, you feel a little bit satisfied that you 've done something from someone that might not have happened if yeah. you if you hadn 't been attending to the detail. Uh, so that's the, it's rather gratifying to get that feedback that doesn't happen in research i told you there are great moments but they're, yeah, no, it doesn't, they're, they're, like they're that. not as frequent as every week i know the clinicians that come and do phds really struggle with the sort of
0: latency of the feedback compared Indeed. to medicine <laughs> yeah yeah oh,
1: and what about the nobel prize itself is is it a glittery trophy and and where where do you keep it uh,
2: well I, I i i couldn't tell you where we keep it but it is it <laughs> is there is a medal which is which there is a gold medal uh which has a certain insurance value i've been asked to take out uh there's a cash prize which is substantial and uh a certificate and uh some, some something as a memento to put on the wall so it's um, not in the
1: downstairs loo then no,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah
1: fantastic so um, the first is from a lady called christy Uh, she says i'm anemic and inject myself with aranesp every month so everything you do is much appreciated her question is why did you choose nephrology as your specialty in the first place
2: ah no that's a good question um i um larry baker a consultant nephrologist at bart's um was my consultant when i was a houseman larry said Peter, you should do nephrology, I think you'd be very good at it. And you can flatter people into anything, I took him at his word and uh, (laughs) there we went. It was an interesting specialty, it is specialist medicine, it's it's different from ordinary medicine. So as someone said, you do need specialists in nephrology and uh, I found the diversity of the technical and other aspects of medicine uh, quite appealing.
1: Thank you. Um, and we've heard from another patient, a lady called Rachel, who apologises for being nosy, but is interested in why you took your research towards oxygen sensing.
2: Um, hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I, the, the, the basic issue is that I, I became interested in the, in the circulation of the kidney. And the reason for that was that I was interested in why the kidney suffers in shock so-called aki and um i failed to solve that problem but but it did set me thinking about the very unusual uh, blood vessel uh, uh, arrangement in in the kidney which, which leaves the center of the kidney as having a very low oxygen level and i i thought that had something to do with the precision of control over the blood hemoglobin level that the normal kidney achieved. Uh, And I I wanted to look into that mechanism uh, because I thought it would be fascinating to find it out is is the honest answer. And uh, uh, subsequently, of course, we realized that that it had importance beyond the kidney. And we also realized that the oxygen sensing mechanism uh, was in, pharmacological terms a perfect drug target it it was an enzyme for those that's a biological catalyst it has a little a little bit like a lock and key where you can you can jam the mechanism and inhibit it and uh, that's of course what the prolyl hydroxylase inhibitors are now doing to to trick the body into thinking that it has low oxygen when it doesn't and make appropriate adaptive responses
1: and had you seen um, uh, uh, patients suffering particularly with anemia and and was it at the back of your mind uh, at all during that your decision making process about where you wanted to focus
2: i 'd seen plenty of patients suffering from anemia, mm. but to be perfectly honest, the reason for getting into the subject was shock. Renal kidney shock, that, that's what I thought I could do something about, and that turned out uh, not to be the case. Uh, so the actual line of research was, was coincidental to that uh, and, and broadly led by uh, the ambition to understand that process. Sure. With sure. a vague idea, vague idea that, that it might be of some use in medicine. So I'm mostly taken
0: away, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you feel and I'm inclined to agree with you, that the most important thing as researchers is that we do something that we're really passionate about and that if we design the project perhaps around patient benefit but it's a bit off-topic for what we're particularly interested in, that's perhaps not as beneficial as just doing something you're super interested in so that you have that drive and that motivation. Does that sort of sum up your feelings?
2: Uh, yes, it does, but but the, the, there is there is an intention to be useful. The, the, these... Yeah. these These research projects are not chosen at random. The the primary and most important thing in a research project is that it's tractable. If you can't solve the problem, then you waste a lot of money and there is no benefit, no matter how important the benefit might be if you did solve the problem. That's that's the, the issue with... Uh, taking the most important problems if they're not soluble Mm. you're going to waste your money and your time so the researcher has to believe that the project is soluble and they in their mind believe also that the answer is important and I did believe it was important but in a sort of nebulous way and uh, the the real drive was I thought there'd be something uh, important that was gainable tractable
0: yeah yeah Yeah. and then you've got the passion to deliver it then
2: Uh, and then you have the motivation to put the best years of your life and all of that time (laughs) into trying to solve it You, you have to believe you have to believe number one that it is soluble and number two that the solution will be important that importance could be in in many many ways
1: I'm sure an awful lot of people are very grateful that you did have that belief yeah, yeah
2: thank you very much and thanks <laughs> for your
0: time thank it's you. been great thanks thank you. so that was our interview with Sir Peter Ratcliffe um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did um, I think he really got across quite well that we need to keep scientists enthused and engaged in solving these problems it was amazing to hear that actually at the Crick Institute, they have over 77 different nationalities um, of people working there. And I think that's, that is awesome. Uh, you know, if you sort of picture the amount of different perspectives and cultural backgrounds that we'll be mixing there um, and all those different viewpoints on the same problems, um, I think it's absolutely key. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our podcast and our interview with um, Sir Peter Ratcliffe. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, If you could take the time to like, share, subscribe, follow um, the Keep It Renal podcast, we have a Twitter handle, which is at Keep It Renal. Uh, and we've got a page on facebook Uh, feel free to get in touch with any feedback or ideas for shows we're definitely encouraging uh, interaction between ourselves and you guys Uh, we definitely want to encourage any and all interaction between ourselves and you guys you know this is a community um, spirited endeavor um, and we definitely want to not only keep it renal but keep it relevant Um, so we're willing to cover any and all aspects that you might be interested in. So please do get in touch and you can do that via our Facebook page. So please join, share, um, and you can also use our Twitter handle, which is at Cupid I look forward to hearing from you. Take care and see you on the next pod. Take it easy.